Why don't you turn it to John chapter 16. We're going to pick up where we left up off in John's gospel. And if you've been a Christian for any amount of time, I don't assume that everybody is, but for those of you who have been Christian for, uh, a Christian for a, an amount of time, we all do this. We all kind of stop and take stock, really are critical of ourselves at, at different points in time, and we say, all right, I claim to follow Jesus, and we start to, we start to assess our Christian walk. Don't we hear this quite often? We say it. We hear others say it. And it's like, man, I, just, I need to read my Bible more. I'm just not in the Word very much. And we think, ah, I really want to. I really should be in, the, be in the Word more. You hear that often. My prayer life, I, I want to grow my prayer life. My prayer life is quite weak. Right? I don't know when the last time was that I took a, a, a chunk of time and just prayed. I want to grow in my prayer life. Or we, we often think, I mean, the great command is to love God and love neighbor. Am I, am, I, am I loving? How am I doing at that? Am I loving God? Am I loving? How am I loving my neighbor? And we ask that question or about an area of sin. We say, am I, am I experiencing any victory, any growth in these, this area of sin? You know, sometimes we have a proclivity to particular sins. It's like, am I, am I growing at all? Am I, am I experiencing victory? Am I like, what is, you know, we take stock of that. Here's what, one thing I, I, I don't think I've ever heard before but I think it's critically important to the Christian life as well. All of those things are critically important. We should assess those things. We should bring them to the Lord. We should desire to grow in them. But one that I rarely ever hear in the mix, if ever, is what's my joy level at? Where's my joy at? How joyful am I? Or take stock of kind of the negative. Why is there so much joylessness in my life? Now, the reason I say all this is because this is one of the commands we see throughout Scripture, like constantly, like at every turn. There's this command, this imperative, rejoice. The Bible is telling us to do something. You know what it is? Have joy. Be joyful. And that always strikes us as odd, doesn't it? We assume, I assume, you assume, I'm going to speak for you here. We assume that joy is something that just happens to us. I think by default, we just think joy will happen to us. Right? So, so the way that that works is we stand at the end of a day and we go, man, that was, a, that was a good day. Wow. I almost wasn't expecting that. I feel really good. It all, it's all kind of like it happened to me. Like these things went well. I feel great. So joy happens to us. That's, that's kind of our, our working view of joy, but it's actually false. Joy is not something that just happens to us, this involuntary thing that makes the perfect scenarios collide in our lives and produce joy. No, it's an imperative of Scripture, a way of living, a way of being that can just be who we are, how we live. Look, this may be new for a few of you this morning, but for most of us, this is just a reminder. This is just a reminder of some perspective in the Christian life, and it's this. A reminder that Christian, the Christian can have joy in all circumstances. Like, look, look at just a few of these imperatives with me. 1 Thessalonians 5.16 says, rejoice always. It doesn't just say rejoice when you get a bonus and feel good for a little bit. No, rejoice always. Not, don't re just rejoice in that one great day. Rejoice always. In Romans 12.12, rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Rejoice in hope. Do it, it says. Philippians 4.4, 4, Paul really, the apostle, really wants to make this one clear. Rejoice in the Lord always. 
I'll say it again. Rejoice. That, that's what Paul says. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. So let me give you a little bit of context for why we're talking about joy and why this morning I want to make a serious case, make a very serious call for joy. A little while, verse 16, and you will see me no longer, Jesus says. And again, a little while, and you will see me. We'll talk about that confusing statement in a little bit. Some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us? A little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. And because I'm going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he's talking about. Sometimes you're not the only ones, okay? Jesus' disciples who were hanging with Jesus were like, what's he talking about? They didn't know what he was saying. Verse 19, Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, is this what you are asking yourselves? What I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me and again a little while and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. In that day, you will ask of me nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. We're going in two directions this morning, but they connect. They are tied to each other. The first is, how can we have unparalleled joy in the midst of anything? I want to talk about how we can have unparalleled joy in the midst of anything. And second, what praying to God the Father in Jesus' name means. What that actually means. And they do tie together. Let's stop. Let's pray. And then we'll dig into the text a little bit more. Lord Jesus... Thank you for, in a very real way, being in our, that we get to be in your presence this morning. Thank you for your church gathered. I thank you for your word. I thank you for what you want to teach us this morning. Lord, I'm, I'm excited for us to talk about these things, to get to preach this, because you have something for us that the world cannot give us. You call us to it and you provide it for us. Lord, help us see, help us live this out. Lord, I pray you'd impress it not only on our minds as something to think about, but on our hearts as something to experience and live. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's look at it first. Unparalleled joy in the midst of anything. I'm going to give you four ways that we can have that. Four things we need to focus on for that to be true. That you can have unparalleled, nothing compares to the kind of joy offered no matter what is going on. The first is this. Unparalleled joy in the midst of anything is centered on Jesus. Verse 16. A little while and you will see me no longer. And again a little while and you will see me. I'm going to talk about that complicated little phrase in a second. But what I want you to see here first is that it revolves around Jesus. In a little while, you won't see me, and that will include some sorrow for you. But then in a little while, you will see me, and that will mean joy for you. So the whole sorrow and joy piece, it's all revolving around Jesus. You, I won't be seen. I won't be here. 
You're going to be sorrowful. Others will be rejoicing. Then I'm going to be here, and you will have joy. So first and foremost, it's centered on Jesus. Um, There are many things competing for our affection. You know this. I know this. This is why ads exist, advertisements, because they're, they're, they're competing. They're trying to make a compelling case why you need something or how great your life will be. We, we, there are these competing things in the world competing for our affection, not only that, for supremacy in our lives, that chief place that, that this is what I live for. This is where I'm happy. This is what provides the most joy for me. That supremacy can be money. It can be family. It can be power. It can be comfort. It can be safety. It can be pleasure. It can be work. We could go on and on. And the reality is that our hearts are idol factories which means that we can take all of these good things and all these things we're told, all these things that exist in the world, there's millions of them, and we can turn them into an idol, a thing we worship, a thing we love most, a thing that has that supreme ultimate place in our lives. We can all do that. We can take any good thing in life and turn it into an ultimate thing. So there's millions of options, but really it boils down to two, two options. Two places that you and I look for joy and satisfaction. We either look to the creation or we look to the creator. Boils down to that. What are we looking to to bring us the most joy and satisfaction in our lives? We look to the creation or we look to the creator. This is an incredibly important distinction because if you're looking for joy and satisfaction in the creation, anything in the world, you're on your way to crushing disappointment. That thing will let you down or that thing will be taken from you beyond your control. And if your joy is wrapped up in that, well, then you will lose your joy the minute you lose that thing. On the other hand, if you're looking for joy and satisfaction in Jesus, you're on your way to peace and joy everlasting. Peace and joy in all circumstances because as we'll look at more, Jesus can't be taken from you. There are a million things to be joyful about But it's critical that our joy is centered on Jesus, the solid rock, and not on the shifting sand, because that joy can be swept away in an instant. It needs to be centered on Jesus. Secondly, unparalleled joy in the midst of anything is not without sorrow. Verse 20 says, truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. What I want us to see here at the very beginning when we're talking about sorrow is that we're talking about pain, regret, sadness, or to be overcome with grief. And it's talking about the, the fact that sorrow is real. So we need to hear this. We all experience sorrow. Interestingly, some of us seem to have really smooth sailing for seasons in our lives while well, 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 people we know seem to get pounded with sorrow after sorrow after sorrow. What's, why them? Why, is, why, why all these things? But all of us will experience sorrow. Here's what's not being said in the text, that you cannot feel sorrow, that you will not experience sorrow, that you are just supposed to be joyful all the time in the sense of everything's great. It's all good. <laughs> like tears coming down your face. Life's awesome. Life, life's great. How are you, brother? I'm, I'm rejoicing in the Lord. <laughs> it's all it's great. Like we're not, that's not the call here. That it's, it's pure joy all the time, no matter what. You won't have hardship. Just There's no call to faking it at all. That's not what's happening here. We all experience very true, very real sorrow. But Jesus wants us to put all sorrow, all sorrow, 
all suffering, all hardship into perspective. And I don't even need to think up an illustration for that. Jesus gives one. He says in verse 21, when a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but you will, I will see you again. And your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. No one. Earlier this week, because this story is in my passage, I started to talk with Emily, my wife, ahead of time. Like, what, what are the things I can say about our babies being born? I just want to know what the no-go areas are and the stories here and what I can share. So we were working that out and just reminiscing that the... the, the um, the labor for, for Boston, our first son, was 23 hours long. I, rem- I remembered that it was 23 hours because it was like we were just about to go to bed and her water broke and that began the 23 hours of labor. And I just remember being so tired and that was really hard for me. And so, um, it was just uh, like up all night and up all day. It was, like, it was really tough for us to have that baby. And uh, she's not in this service, so it doesn't really matter what she said. It could say, no, it does, it does. And then with Walker, our younger son, I, I remember, like, yeah, and that, that was very different because, like, the labor was, like, four hours. And she looked at me, and she's like, man, it was two hours start to finish. And we actually drove from Chilliwack to Abbotsford in the midst of that. And I, I actually understand how the stories happen where baby born on the side of the road scenarios happen because it was a mad rush. It was kind of a don't have the baby yet kind of a scene and um, just remember some things from that, because the first one, the 23-hour one, it was a slow process. We're just trying to keep things calm. This is tough, and it could be a medicated calm as well, which was helpful. Um, and then the two-hour one, the whole medicated part was not even remotely an option. And so um, Emily remembers the doctor at one point saying to her, okay, you're going to need to stop kicking me now. And... Uh, and also, after the baby was born, Emily asked one of the nurses, she was feeling like, oh, that, that, that was pretty crazy. And she asked the nurse, like, have you ever had a woman, like, scream, like, that loud before? And she just, like, fully expected the nurse to be like, oh, of course, all the time, all the time. Expected the nurse to be like, of course, dear. Oh, looked, looked at Emily and was like, she's like, asked the question, like, um, has anybody screamed that loud before? She's like, eh, was, you're one of the first, you're one of the loudest. Yeah, it was... <laughs> In other words, like, yeah, that was, that was crazy. Um, and something else interesting about this stage of life where you're around um, couples having babies, and we announce baby birth announcements all the time, what seems to happen constantly, I, 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 seem, I feel like I'm in these scenarios a lot, is, is that a, a mother starts telling the birth story. It's quite a common thing among young moms is, is just telling, here's the birth story, and then some moms start to gather around and, and start to share the birth stories. And it's really interesting to watch because the dads are just kind of like, the moms are congregating and the dads are just like, like getting out, I'm just going to check the game, check the score. I don't need to hear about what their birth story was. It's just really an interesting thing. But why is that? Because there's this common scenario here of that was so crazy and this happened and this was hard and this was awful and this was crazy and, that, and it, all of those things. And yet it, it, it even the stories are somewhat told in joy because baby was born. And, and it happens in an instant. Like, I was just floored to observe this process of anguish turned to quickly getting the baby ready, you know, swaddled up, put on mom's chest from an, in an instant. Anguish, pain, sorrow, mayhem, peace, joy. 
a stunning reality. It's an incredible thing. G.K. Chesterton touches on this. He says, a person is fully human when joy is the fundamental thing in him, meaning that we experience what God created us to experience, joy in Him, a joy that is meant for the human soul. And we're only fully human when we understand that God made us that way and provided us a way for us to experience such joy. But he says that joy is the fundamental thing and grief the superficial. Melancholy should be an innocent interlude, a tender and fugitive frame of mind. Praise should be the permanent pulsation of the soul. Pessimism is at best an emotional half-holiday. Joy is the uproarious labor by which all things live. Sorrow, grief, and pain, they're real, but they're not the final word. They are brief interludes, as Chesterton would say. Joy and praise are the resounding themes. J.R. Tolkien in The Lord of the Rings uh, um, return of the king. I just got to nerd out, uh, nerd out here for a minute. Uh, Samwise Gamgee was, uh, no, so, uh, just, uh, really into Lord of the Rings, but I was just, I, I checked with pastor Chris and this checks out. This is an official quote from the return of the king. I, if I just need to check my Lord of the Rings things, I just, I just go to Chris. That was in fact, an insult to him that he's a nerd. Um, but he loves the Lord of the Rings so much. And uh, I do as well. But in The Return of the King, Sam says, Gandalf, I thought you were dead. But then I thought I was dead myself. And then he asked, is everything sad going to come untrue? What's happened to the world? A great shadow has departed, said Gandalf. All right. And then he laughed and the sound was like music or like water in a parched land. And as he listened, the thought came to Sam that he had not heard laughter, the pure sound of merriment for days upon days without count. And then there it was, like music, the laughter filling the room. But it's an amazing question that Sam asks in that moment, thinking that Gandalf had died, thinking that he had died, and asking the question, are the sad things going to come untrue? Well, C.S. Lewis, Tolkien's good friend, actually answers that in his writings when he says, some mortals say of some temporal blessing, or sorry, some mortals say of some temporal suffering, no future bliss can make up for it. All the wrong that has happened to me, all the bad, all the suffering, all the hardship, there's nothing that could make up for such tragedy. But he goes on to say, not knowing that heaven, once attained, will work backwards and turn even that agony into a glory. I, I, I think that the, 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 the giving birth illustration and then the joy of bearing the child is a great illustration because does the, the birth of the child and the joy that brings undo the, the suffering, the agony? No but it actually finds a greater depth, a meaning. It, and, and I can go through that to get to this. And that's exactly what happens. This is what the psalmist says of a promise of God in Psalm 30, verse 5. Weeping may remain for a night, but rejoicing comes in the morning. Like this isn't just a happy verse for a morning person. This is like a promise of God for all people. 
It's about the kind of joy that triumphs over the sorrows and nightmares of life. Weeping may remain for a night, but rejoicing, it comes in the morning. Hebrews 12 says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a crowd of witnesses, it's just listed in Hebrews 11, this hall of faith of people like Abel and Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Moses and Rahab and others, lives marked with suffering, but also deep faith. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. We ask the question sometimes. Others ask it too. How could a loving God allow such suffering in, a, in the world, the kind that makes sorrow exist? And to the extent that it is, we just don't know completely why. We know that sin entered the world and that we are sinners and that we contribute to the sorrows and the sufferings. Sometimes people get angry at God. How could he allow such things? It's helpful to remember that a God powerful enough to stop sufferings is a God that may have reasons beyond our comprehension to allow the sufferings. We need to allow for that. But this is what we do know about the God who does allow suffering in the world and for sorrow to exist. It's the God who stepped into it in Jesus in Jesus, God came and experienced suffering, sorrow, and grief. He experienced a nightmare so that our sorrow could be turned into joy. How could God allow such suffering? We don't fully know, but we know he stepped into it. He took the brunt of it so that we'd have a way out of such suffering and sorrow and experience joy. Let's move on because it'll continue to round the picture for us. Third, unparalleled joy in the midst of suffering is grounded in the resurrection. So let me describe this for you. Let me read verse 17 first, and then we'll kind of unpack what this saying is of a little while. So some of his disciples said to one another, what is it that he says to us? A little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. And because I'm going to the father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he's talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, is what, you are ask, is what you are asking yourselves what I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me and again a little while and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. In other words, the death of Christ is imminent. In a little while, you will not see me. He's going to the cross. He's going to the tomb. But then in a little while, you will see me. So in that little while where Jesus has died, where Jesus is in the tomb, the world, those who put him there are rejoicing, but they're filled with sorrow. Then Jesus rises from the grave and their sorrow is turned to joy. 
But you need to understand, the disciples just do not get at all what's happening because they had no category for what was going to happen next. The death of Christ is imminent. We've been approaching this in John's gospel, the death of Christ. We've been approaching it. The disciples have no category. Jesus is giving hints. They just have no cat. There's just no proper way to prepare them for what is about to happen. He is going to die on a cross, and they have no category for it because they assume that the Messiah, who Jesus is, they believe he's the Messiah, he is the Messiah, they right, rightly believe that, that Jesus is going to probably in a military way overthrow Roman occupation. In some way, shape, or form, he's going to bring Israel freedom from the Romans. Lift that oppression. Give them peace in their land. Joy in this land that flows with milk and honey. It will be theirs again in a beautiful way. That's the way they're thinking. They have no category for the Messiah, the Savior of the world, the rescuer, the one who's been ushering in the kingdom of God that they've been observing. They have no category for him dying. So when that happens, they're reeling. They're reeling. They're sorrowful. They're in agony. They're in pain. They don't, they don't, they don't understand anything anymore. They don't know what to believe. They're filled with grief. But this is the thing about our Savior. This is the thing about God, the Son, who came to earth, who lived and died. The death, the grave, Jesus paid the penalty for our sins on the cross. And in his resurrection, Jesus triumphed over death. These things happen. There's resurrection. There's victory. And when our joy is grounded in the resurrection, we don't need to be those without hope as the disciples were in those first days. We are like the disciples post-resurrection, filled with joy, filled with hope. This is good. This will always be good, which leads to the last point. Look at verse 22. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. So lastly, unparalleled joy in the midst of anything cannot be taken away. Why? Well, because it is grounded in the resurrection, and the resurrection can't be undid. Resurrection ain't going to be undid. Jesus hung on the cross, nearing death, and he said, It is finished. Sins atoned for on the cross. It's done. And to the women who went to Jesus' tomb, angels appeared to them and said, why do you look for the living among the dead? He is risen. Jesus is not dead. He is alive. He's resurrected. It's true. He has triumphed. He has victory over sin and death. There's no fear in death. I have really enjoyed some of my conversations with older saints in our congregation here, and it's interesting to watch their prayers change over the years. From, Lord, would you heal this ailment to saints who love Jesus praying, Lord, I'm ready to see you in glory. I, I'm so moved by those kinds of prayers because there's no fear in death. I, I just see the joy, the sparkle in their eye as they say, their prayer turns from heal me to take me sooner. I'm ready. I'm ready now, Lord. I'd like to, like, I'm so floored by that. That's so countercultural. You have no idea. No fear in death. Why? Because the resurrection happened. That can't be undid. No fear in death, only hope and joy everlasting. Look at Romans 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, and when we say faith, we're talking about persistent hope in the promises of God. 
Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We can believe it. Not only that, we rejoice in our sufferings. We can rejoice in hope, and we can actually rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. So let me just summarize this section for us quickly, answering the question, okay, how do I experience joy then? First, we just obey the command of Scripture, this imperative, rejoice always. But by God's grace, he gives us more to go on than just obey that. Jesus becomes the very source of all joy for us. Every joy, every gift, every blessing that, that God gives in our lives, we, we, every joy comes back to him. We give glory for his grace to him because he's the source of our joy. He's that rock in our joy. If you want to experience joy now and forever, Jesus is your source. Jesus is the center. All comes back to Jesus. How do I experience joy? Well, because of the resurrection, we can have perspective. Perspective about sorrow. Perspective that it's temporary. We can have this grand perspective, recognizing that what is to come cannot be undone. What has been done is accomplished, and what is coming can't be undone. We have hope in the midst of anything. This is why the Apostle Paul says this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond comparison in 2 Corinthians 4. I love that line, this light and momentary affliction. This is the man who would walk to somewhere, preach the gospel, get stoned. They'd think he was dead from being stoned. And then he'd get up and go back and preach. And then he starts to, like, this is the guy who says, this light and momentary affliction. Ah, got stoned again, guys. Ah, light and momentary. He says the same thing in Romans 8. It's not just like a, a one blip on the radar. He says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Anything, any suffering, very real, yes, very real. But when we see the gospel, when we see our story in the midst of the grand story of redemption, we see that our suffering is light and momentary affliction. We see that our suffering is not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. Amen. Let's look at this last section briefly on praying in Jesus' name. Let's pick it up in verse 23. In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. See, look, before this time, disciples of Jesus had not prayed in Jesus' name. They had asked things of Jesus in person. But now Jesus has instructed his disciples to pray in Jesus' name. So what does it mean to pray in Jesus' name? I heard a story of some pastors who were meeting together in another community, not here. And at one point there was a man there who just did not like what he was hearing in the room. And he just stood up and said, I rebuke you all in Jesus' name. I guess he thought that if he added an in Jesus' name to it, it was like that would seal it. 
heard of another, of a small group meeting together. Imagine this, it's not in this town either. Group of people around the Word of God, studying it together, and somebody in the room, this, this newcomer in the room, actually said, stop talking. He would do this to people in the room. Stop talking in Jesus' name. The Lord says, stop talking. In other words, if, they, if you add an in Jesus' name to anything crazy you say, it's, it's legitimately Christian, I guess. I, I just want to, just for the record, just so central aren't those people, um, don't do weird stuff like that, okay? Stop it. No more saying your crazy line followed by in Jesus' name. No. No more. Okay, so if that's not praying in Jesus' name, what is? What does it mean to pray in Jesus' name then? First, praying to God the Father in Jesus' name means coming before God through faith in Jesus. Right? It's, it's not some kind of magic formula you add a in Jesus' name, no matter who you are or what you believe, and it'll do something for you. No, to pray in Jesus' name first and foremost means um, coming before God through faith in Jesus. We pray in Jesus' name when we're people who have believed in him for salvation, when we believed in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. If you've put your faith in Jesus for salvation, he invites you to pray in his name. So the first thing about praying in Jesus' name is that it's, it's, it's prayer done by those who confess Jesus as Lord, the center of their lives. Secondly, to pray to God the Father in Jesus' name means approaching God on the merits of Jesus, on the merits of Jesus. So prior to this, when Israelites would pray to God, it was often accompanied by a sacrifice. They might bring a, an offering, a burnt offering, a grain offering, and oftentimes they would present those offerings in order to be cleansed and go through the cleansing rituals and, and to, be, to be pure before God and be able to approach his throne and to pray. Priests would bring the sacrifices before God on behalf of the people. So they would bring them to the priests and the priests would prepare these sacrifices. But now... Because Jesus is the greater high priest and has in fact made us a royal priesthood, priests ourselves. There's no longer God behind the veiled in the temple and only the high priest can go through all those kinds of scenarios. No, the curtain has been torn. There is no physical temple that Christians need to go to. Why? Because the Holy Spirit dwells within us, God in us. We are temples. We are a royal priesthood. But not only that, because Jesus is the once-for-all sacrificial lamb, we can come before God the Father on the merits of who Jesus is, what he has done, what he has accomplished. So when we come in Jesus' name, we come on his merits, who he is, and what he's prepared, the way that we, he can present us now before the Father. Martin Luther, about praying in Jesus' name, said, This is nothing more than that we come before God in the faith of Christ and comfort ourselves with the sure confidence that he is our mediator through whom all things are given to us, without whom we merit nothing but wrath and disgrace. What do we merit? Wrath and disgrace. But with Jesus, it is praying aright in Christ's name when we thus trust in him that we will be received and heard for his sake, not for our own sake, on his account, not ours, he says. It's like with a check. If I, if I, if I want to pay someone a large sum of money, I, I will use, you know, typically I'll use my, my checkbook and I'll write a check and I had better have enough money in the bank so that that check doesn't bounce. Well, I'm a pastor and uh, I have little kids and so I don't write very big checks. And so I, I can write a small check. I can do that. I can write a small check and I can present that check and, and, and then I hope it doesn't bounce. Um, but what if I need to present somebody a check and it's a large sum of money and and it's not my name on the line on the check, it's somebody else's. I, I'm presenting a check with someone else's name on it. 
and they're infinitely wealthy, uh, infinitely wealthy. It doesn't matter what the number on the check is. When I hand it, I'm handing it, but it's got the, the name of an infinitely wealthy person on it. I am fully confident that that thing ain't bouncing. It's not. Why? It's in the name of the one who is infinitely wealthy. And you and I, my friends, my Christian brothers and sisters in Christ, we pray in Jesus' name on the merits of what Jesus has done. And he is infinitely wealthy. Third, praying to God the Father in Jesus' name means praying as Jesus would pray in the same circumstances. In other words, to ask something in someone else's name is to ask as though you were that person. Part of praying in Jesus' name is praying for what Jesus would want what his desires are. And so maybe the question comes to you at this point, well, how could we possibly know what Jesus would want? How, would, how could we possibly know what Jesus would pray? Well, there's two answers to that, the Bible and the Holy Spirit. As we study and know the Bible, this is why it is critical that we are people of the Word. As we study and know the Bible, we are able to grow in our understanding of what the will of God is. As we get to know Jesus in his word, in his life, what he said, how he lived, how he sacrificed, we can know what Jesus would pray in the same set of circumstances because we come to know Jesus in his word. I, I acknowledge there are times when we don't know God's will in a situation. We don't know what aligns with Christ's character and objective. So we, we feel like we can't faithfully pray what Jesus would pray. And when that's the case, we should pray cautiously allowing the Holy Spirit to do the work that only He can do, to interpret our prayers rightly, to come before God nonetheless, but relying on the Holy Spirit. That's what Romans 8.26 is saying. The Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And He who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. What a promise. What a beautiful thing. Even when we don't know what to pray, we just lean on the Lord and say, I don't know what to pray in this circumstance, but I trust that your spirit is, is not only um, searching my heart, also knows the truth of your will and your ways, God. But wherever God's will is revealed in Scripture, we can pray confidently in Jesus' name, knowing we will receive what we ask. Finally, lastly, this is where it comes full circle. Praying to God the Father in Jesus' name means our asking and receiving are a route to receiving joy. Praying to God the Father in Jesus' name means that our asking and receiving are a route, are a route to receiving joy. Verse 24, until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Praying in Jesus' name is the route to the joy Jesus promised earlier, a joy that cannot be taken. How is praying in Jesus' name, asking and receiving, what, how does it bring us such joy? Well, it actually brings us a lot of joy when we receive what we ask, no? So that's the first part. Has anybody ever had answered prayer? Prayer answered? My prayers have been answered. Like, there's just joy in that. You just express it like, God, answer my prayer. You bring it back to your life group. You've been praying for something for months and months, and you're like, God answered this prayer, everybody. Like, we're just rejoicing in what? That God answered the prayer. There is just joy in the asking and the receiving in Jesus' name for that prayer. In the sermon last week, we heard of the answered prayer of Monica, the mother of Augustine. She prayed for years and years, decades, for her husband and son to come to faith in Jesus Christ, and eventually they both surrendered their lives to Jesus. 
There's just great joy for a mother and a wife, and they gave their lives to Jesus. They're just just praising God for that. But there's another part to it. Receiving what we ask for also makes God real to us in a much deeper way. So the route to joy is not even so much having our prayers answered as much as it is encountering the living God in an intimate way. So yes, everybody, I prayed about this. I asked God for this thing and he answered my prayer. And that's going on over here. But we're also like, and I'm walking with the Lord. Like, he is amazing. Isn't he amazing, everybody? And we're just reveling in the goodness of who God is because there's a growing now, a depth and intimacy with the Lord. Yes, he answered the prayer, the thing, the ask. But I'm walking with the Lord in such a beautiful, deep way because the asking and the receiving produce joy, they produce intimacy with the Lord. Let me just tie it all together. Let me conclude it with this. Listen, central, I want you to believe this. This is his word. In prayer, in prayer, by asking and receiving in Jesus' name, we get joy. And in the gospel, because of who Jesus is and all that he has done, by believing in that, we get joy. And then there's this extra promise, and no one will take your joy from you. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for these truths. They are preaching to my heart this morning. Lord, I I need to hear this. You call us to joy, not faking it. You call us to joy in all circumstances as we walk with you as we lean on you, as we submit our lives to you, as we bring our hurts to you, as we ask of things of you, Lord Jesus, thank you that you meet us in our distress. And thank you that our distress is not the end game. It's not the conclusion. It's light and momentary affliction. And there's a weight of glory coming our way, Lord. I pray you'd give us that divine perspective. I pray really practically, Lord, give us great joy in the midst of anything. In Jesus' name, amen.